Yo, Trey. Kevin, what's up, man? You know, I've been thinking, what would have happened if the NBA never vetoes the Chris Paul trade to the Lakers and we get CP3 in the same backcourt as Kobe in L.A.? Well, you get a very happy Jack Nicholson, for sure. And the Lakers probably win a bunch more championships. CP3 finally gets a ring or two or three. And the Kardashian empire is forever altered. What did you just say? Hey, everybody, I'm Trey Wingo. And I'm Kevin Frazier, and we're teaming up on a new weekly sports podcast from Wondery Alternate Routes. As former sports center anchors and current sports obsessives, we're consumed by all the what-if questions that make being a sports fan so excruciatingly fun. If you're like us, then you also live and die on the fallout from every drop pass. Or play call. Each week on Alternate Routes, we'll take a flashpoint in sports, break down what actually happened, then explore every alternate scenario and the ripple effects it would have caused. Follow Alternate Routes on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. From 2400 Sports, Odyssey, and Major League Baseball, this is the PBP Voices of Baseball. We bring you the people who bring you the game. Hello and welcome to the PBP Voices of Baseball. My name is Matt Spiegel. The first thing I ever wanted to be was a play-by-play guy for Major League Baseball. And now here in my 50s, I've unexpectedly gotten a shot. I've done 12 innings of MLB regular season PBP. It's a long story. Listen to episode one. But for those who don't know, I became fascinated with the job and the craft, pushed that energy into this podcast series where I get to ask the very best to ever do it, how and why they do it. And our guest today is the incredible Joe Davis. Might be my favorite episode yet. Wait until you hear about so much of what Joe Davis is going to tell you, including the all-star game heirloom that Joe Buck handed down to him that he used this very week. So, so cool. But first, I've been sitting on some information that is dying to break free. I'm incredibly excited and terrified and thrilled and generally buzzing to talk to you about it and then to do it. Here's the deal. When Pat Hughes is in Cooperstown, New York... To be inducted into the Hall of Fame as this year's incredibly deserving recipient of the Ford Frick Award, his whole radio booth is going to support him and celebrate him. Ron Coomer will be there. Zach Zaidman will be there. That means someone else has to do those ball games in full. And I am going to be the play-by-play voice of the Chicago Cubs for the weekend series against the St. Louis Cardinals, the weekend of July 21st. Three games, all day games at 120, against the traditional rival i get to be the vessel for baseball on the radio i can't even believe it as i say it i've known about it for months and still it doesn't seem real it's emotional frankly um among the things i'm looking forward to because i've only done the fifth inning of 12 different games how about doing the entire game not just the fifth. Len Casper described doing the fifth to me as, quote, you remember, you're jumping on and off a moving train, unquote. These games will not feel like that, I hope. Uh, Doing three games with the same opponent, all the research and prep I have done and will do for the Cardinals could be useful at any point of the whole weekend, or maybe it doesn't get used, as some of our guests have detailed. I I can follow a story in one ballgame by asking players about it in the clubhouse the next day. Goodness. And working with the same partner for all three games, Elise Menneker is an excellent baseball mind and communicator whose work on the Marquee Sports Network in multiple roles is always solid, always fun. We actually did two games together on the radio in spring training of 2022 and found easy chemistry then. I know we will again. 
Anyway, I'll be writing and thinking about it a lot leading up, and then we'll be able to document the experience right here together. What an incredible opportunity, not just in general, but specifically in the midst of this exploration of the job itself. The timing is something. Speaking of timing, our guest today has arrived as a great young broadcaster in this decade, just as some legends have departed. Joe Davis, not only the number one baseball voice for Fox TV nationally, doing the All-Star Game, the playoffs, the World Series, but he's also the number one TV voice for the Dodgers. This means he has followed Joe Buck and Vin Scully. Followed is a very specific word choice, as you'll hear Joe lead me to when we get to that part of the conversation. I was incredibly impressed with his reverence for the jobs that he has, his ability and willingness to self-evaluate, and by his efforts to truly be himself amidst it all. I know you will be impressed as well. And we start where we should, with why and when he ever dreamed of doing baseball play-by-play in the first place. Really early. You know, I, I think that as early as you start thinking about what I want to be when I grow up, it was pretty much this for me. Um, the first guy that I remember listening to and saying, I love how he sounds and that seems like a cool job, Gary Thorne on the NHL on ESPN. So that would have been mid-90s. Yeah. Hi, Theo. Uh, mid-90s. And that, that was I was probably, what, six or seven at that point. And so that, that was before you really started thinking, I guess, like, what do I want to be when I grow up? But for whatever reason, I was drawn to him. And then very quickly after that, started paying attention to other broadcasters that I'd listened to. You know, Joe Buck was the guy calling the World Series from my really earliest memories of it. And so he's the guy that I kind of latched on to first when it comes to baseball. And then growing up a Cubs fan, first it was Chip Carey, and then it was Len Casper. And for me, it was always Pat Hughes on Cubs radio. So those would be the guys that really early on I started listening to. And, you know, we, we talk, Matt, about like it doesn't matter if you know exactly what you want to do. Most people don't. But if you can figure it out at a really early age, I think that it it can definitely be a springboard and, and can set you ahead of the curve. And I was lucky enough where I did know that it's what I wanted to do. Yeah, it's interesting. Gary Thorne ended up doing a lot of years with with Baltimore. Did the Orioles mm-hmm. for a long time? Yeah, didn't he? So, so you heard a guy doing hockey, but he was also a multi sport guy, as as you are. Um, and then those very specific names. It's interesting, man, because Pat Hughes has such a incredible calm demeanor that feels mm-hmm. timeless, and, and and you have a very calm and steady, under control delivery that is super comfortable and did that come early or did you work to achieve that calm which is maybe the primary thing you need in a baseball sense in my opinion yeah um probably by osmosis like all these guys were talking about i'm sure i've taken plenty from all of them just by listening most days uh there were things in particular from pat that i ripped off like if you listen to my very first baseball tapes, it probably sounds like I'm just trying to be Pat Hughes. There are still things that I've taken from Pat that I will use uh, almost nightly. I say halfway home, which is a Pat Hughes thing. I say fasten those seat belts, going into a bottom of the ninth where it's tight. That's a Pat Hughes thing. So those would be two nods to Pat, you know. And, and I, I, 
clearly am, am happy to tell you I'm straight ripping him off. And that is for me, just kind of a way to acknowledge what he's meant to me in my career, not just listening to him, but he's become a friend and a mentor to me as well. Back to your question, Matt, about, you know, the kind of the calm and measured delivery. I think that something I've always thought about is trying not to let the action when it speeds up, speed me up. I think that the the best guys, when you listen to them, even when things get going haywire, they remain pretty steady, pretty measured. They don't let the game speed them up. So I don't know if that's something that I, I necessarily was conscious of Pat being the the trendsetter on that or, or the example on that, but I'm sure that he's one of those guys that I took that idea from just by listening to him. That, that makes all the sense in the world. Like, And, and I hear it in you when – a moment gets exciting or tension builds, your voice will climb or the intensity mm. will change, but the pace does not. I, yeah. I was reading about you doing <clears throat> the Montgomery Biscuits, one of the all-time minor league team names, but you, it's, it, what I was reading sounded like you had um, some freedom down there that you took advantage of in terms of trying different styles and kind of, mm using your reps really as a, as an opportunity and a training ground. That's a, that's such a gift to feel free enough to do that. I wonder if you could talk about that year or that process a little bit. Yeah. Almost treated it, Matt, like a lab, you know, where I would take like an experiment lab and I would go in and one day you could listen to tapes of me on say April 20th. And I sound like I'm trying to be Gus Johnson. And then you can hear April 21st, and I sound like I think I'm Pat Summerall. And just trying to explore all these different ranges and see what felt right. I didn't want to like create a style. I didn't want to try to be somebody that I wasn't. I just wanted to discover what I was and, and where I belonged in terms of excitement. And that's something I'm still fine-tuning and trying to figure out. But there was no better time for that than those low-pressure situations where relatively nobody's listening for me to try out different styles and, and different levels of excitement to see where I was most comfortable. It's really cool because um, I love thinking about cross disciplines. You know, I'm a I'm a musician, and as you're saying, you know, take a little bit or pay homage to Pat with you know, buckle your seatbelts. Musicians, we steal stuff from each other all the time. Like if you're going to steal, steal from the best. You know, that's Amen. one thing. And and then the other is uh, is rehearsal. That that's where you're supposed to mess up. That's where you're supposed to take those chances and. All due respect to the Montgomery Biscuits, but you're a young man with bigger dreams. That's where you're supposed to take those chances, right? Yeah, that's interesting hearing you make the the music reference and the word rehearsal. I guess it kind of was, and I like I didn't I wasn't looking at it like that. I was looking at it as what a cool opportunity to do pretty big time baseball at a college, double A baseball. It was a big deal. Um, sure. But I guess it was rehearsal. Like every day really was rehearsal for where I wanted to go. I knew where I wanted to go and I wanted to use every day as a chance to get a little bit closer to that place. Was there anything you tried out in that time that you still think might've been a good idea? That's kind of like just sort of creeps into your head every once in a mm -hmm. while and you got to maintain being yourself with the voice that you have found. Yeah, I don't know if it's if it's one thing in particular. I think that probably the 
and I don't know that it began there, but just kind of the way I'm wired to always look for little ways to fine tune and, and ways to get better. Um, I used to, I would write, I would hand write basically a transcript of my call when I really felt like I was in a rut or just didn't quite feel right. felt like I was too wordy. I would go back and I'd listen to a half inning and I would type it out. And I'd write this, I'd get this transcript of my call and I'd go through and basically like an English teacher going through and scoring a, a, a essay, I'd go through and find words that I could get rid of and ways to tighten the hundred word call into 70 words. And not necessarily that specific method, but that, I guess, insanity, I, I started there and I, I still kind of have as much as I can. It's it's harder now, you know, life gets real and you get kids and a wife and all that. And so there's not as much time to every single day, go back and listen to it and grade it that way. But I'm still, I try to once every couple of weeks, go back and with a really fine comb, go through and find ways to get better like that. That's fascinating um, because this podcast has turned out to be somewhat of a teaching tool. I've heard from a lot of young broadcasters who are listening. And uh, I think I think it was Marty Brenneman last episode or it might have. I think it was Marty or it might have been one we've already taped that hasn't come out. Um, but somebody somebody said, listen to yourself. Like, I know it's hard, you know, and, and you can bo be bothered by it or aggravated, but listen to yourself. You took it to another level. What an opportunity with some time and no family at the time to uh, right. to listen and and self edit. That's that's really taking advantage of, yeah. and, and th that's how you rise to to some levels that you got to, isn't it? It was every day too, Matt. I mean, the job was you know minor league baseball. It's like you get in there at eight a.m. and you're working on game notes and doing all the other stuff that you've got to do to justify your salary, whatever little salary that may be. And uh, it was every single day going in there and I would do the game notes and I would also listen back to the full broadcast from the night before. So a little bit passive going through and doing that, but um, was constantly trying to find way. And when I say constantly, it was every day trying to go back and find uh, ways for me to get better the next night. And I, I still do that. I'm not going back and listening to the full game every night, but I am going back and listening to the highlights from every game. And I try to take what I learned from calling those highlights and what I felt in calling those highlights by listening to them pretty quickly afterwards. So just for example, say that there was a Mookie Betts home run that happened and I felt like I really did it justice and let it rip. And then I go back that night and I listen to the highlight and it's like, eh, that's a little flat. Well, I'll recalibrate the next night and I'll take that feeling that I had calling the Mookie home run, thinking that it was really letting it rip and having it fall flat. And I'll turn it up a notch the next night and the next night it may be the other way, but it's just constantly fine tuning and, and trying to be a little bit better. You ever, you ever compare the way that you look at it, Joe, as you're describing it <clears throat> to the way that the ball players look at their job as they watch tape, they watch mm -hmm. film they deal with things when they've gone well and things when they've gone bad and they have to show up the next night. There's like a, there's a calm self analysis that a lot of really good players have that it sounds like you have as a broadcaster. Yeah, I think so. And I think too, Matt, like any job where it's performance based, which most jobs are, I think you can find a way to grade yourself and some jobs are going to be easier than others to do that. The easy one would be, a sport where you have 
cold, hard numbers to go and, and look at and try and improve upon. In this job, I'm, I'm sure it's the same for you. You know when you're good. You know when you stink. And you know the ways to get a little bit better. I don't know how it works in you know, sales and for lawyers, but I'm sure there are ways to come up with a grading system for yourself and to try and improve upon it if that's how you want to approach it. Yeah, I, I, I bet that that level of calm self-analysis helps when you're replacing Vin Scully or replacing Joe Buck because you're not comparing yourself to them. You're comparing right. yourself to you. Right. That's the standard. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, my approach to those things has always been like, yeah, I'm replacing them, but I, I didn't think of it that way. I think it would be unhealthy for everybody to let my mind go down that path. Cause I think if you think you're replacing a guy, the tendency is going to be to try and be that guy. So I, and it's just, it's semantics, but it helped to say, I'm the guy following the guy and I'm going to try to be myself while at the same time, embracing the fact that being the guy, being the idiot to follow one of those guys is what makes it special. Like that responsibility of following Vin, of following Joe, that's the kind of opportunity that I've dreamt of and that I live for. So to channel it that way, as opposed to, oh my God, like dead man walking, uh, I think that it, it's it probably gave me a shot and also it made it probably more listenable because I think if you looked at it as replacing those guys, that would get exposed, especially in baseball, where I think that it exposes things like that more than any other game call. I think that's probably true. There's a lot of time and a lot of humanity comes out, whether you want it yeah. to or not. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, you know, uh, Joe Buck has, uh, has, has become a friend and was good enough to be the, the first guest on this podcast, right? I texted him this morning just to make sure. He handed you an all-star game oversized scorebook when you guys yeah. did a lunch. Uh, before your first All-Star game. Now, we talk a lot about keeping score, about the style, and I want to ask how you do it and everything like that. Marty Brennan used a number one pencil, which I didn't know existed, Joe. I didn't know there were number ones. I'm still waiting on number three. I know it's going to blow my mind. But yeah. Um, yeah, um, tell me about the, the oversized scorebook and, and, and how it – is it functional? Did you use it for your first all I think I may have it at the desk here. Yeah, I actually do. We're in luck. Outstanding. I'm excited. Because I'm picking uh, – is, is it a Bob Carpenter? Is it some other kind of scorebook? What are we talking no, about here? Joe Buck Kinko's special. Uh, <laughs> let's see. So it is massive – like <laughs> just give it some perspective there yeah and it's got joe's last 12 all-star games or something and then it's got let me flip up here my first all-star game wow. and so that was a, that was a really special thing for me in that joe is been the guy that I always grew up listening to, wanting to be a little bit like, to have the chance to follow him. A physical sort of passing of the torch, you know, like a real physical thing that feels like an heirloom, you know. So heading to uh, Seattle in a little more than a week, and, you know, I got the blank page here ready to rock, and I'm going to keep doing it as I – 
hey, if I run into a, an issue where I run out of pages, I do so many all-star games. I mean, I'm looking here and there's like 15 all-star games worth of pages here. Then I, I feel really good. Maybe that should be my goal. I want to run out of all-star games in the book that Joe passed on to me. Uh, so yeah, this is, this is a really special thing given all that context, Matt. That's so cool. You might, you might be ready to abdicate the throne after 15. You might be like, you know, it, it's time. And, yeah. and now the pages can loom over your career for the next 15 years. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's going to hold it over me. Uh, and then I have <laughs> looking in here, Matt, I'm, uh, I have all my score sheets from the world series from my first world series, not in this book, but I had, I'm glad that I pulled this out just now. Um, I'm saving them. They're in this folder. I'm skipping ahead a little bit here. I know you're going to ask about keeping score, but uh, I think I want to no. frame these, you know, six score sheets from my first world series. And uh, this is where I've stored them, but to give you a little idea. So I use for the regular season, the sheet that they print out in the press box, as opposed to doing a Bob Carpenter scorebook or a custom scorebook. It just saves so much time that is spent just filling names out. Like it cuts out the busy work of a half an hour writing names and numbers and positions that, I mean, you can rely on this in every press box for every game. So what I would do and what I do every day with the Dodgers is I jot down in fine, very fine print. I don't use a number one pencil, but I use a 0.38 pen. I don't have any of those with me, but uh, 0.38 pen that's really fine. And we'll just jot down whether it's a word or it's a quick phrase to get me going on the guy, to help me introduce the guy. Because the only way to be really, really sharp and really on top of it is if you're leaning forward and anticipating that moment where you've got to dive in. And we're talking like fraction of a second difference, split second difference. If you're not leaning forward, ready to set the table and take command, that split second, you're not going to know. You're not going to sit at home and say, hey, he's a split second late. But you're going to feel that, I think, in a lack of command and a lack of overall authority. So having this one word, let's look here, like uh, – for Kyle Schwarber, I have – I don't know how well you'll be able to see it. Uh, HR champ 46. Okay, he's a National League home run champ at 46 of them. And then in green, I use – I color code everything. Green would be this game or this series or, I guess, in this case, this postseason. Three home runs in the postseason. The 12 in parentheses, I believe, is his career postseason home run total. So I've got that, you know, what, one, two, three, four, essentially like six words written there that can launch me into setting the table on Kyle Schwarber as he comes up. Because if it's, that makes all the if he's walking to the plate and we got these shots of him and I'm like, well, here's Schwarber, pause, uh, 46 home runs. Like I may know that it's 46 home runs. And I'm going to have all these notes, and I, I use Microsoft OneNote. We can get into that separately. But if I have that right there to trigger it, that split second, I think, makes all the difference in an overall sense of command and authority that you want out of your, your point guard and the guy steering the broadcast. 
That, it, I love it. Um, again, it reminds me of the ball players like swinging with conviction or throwing pitches uh, with yes. conviction. You know, mm-hmm. but uh, has- but it, it, in terms of play by play, there's so many different ways you can go. Uh, so many different tidbits about Schwarber. Right. That's the that's the the idea. So does most of this stuff come up first time at bat, and you're kind of setting yeah. the table for how you'll discuss them the rest of the way as you're introducing them to people. Exactly. You like we've got I've got pages of material on Kyle Schwarber. So it's almost like helping me cut through those pages. What's most important? What do people need to know tonight? I'm just looking through here to find another uh, example for you. Um, but instead of the the busy work of writing out the names, which yeah. I, I need to do when I'm doing the job every once in a while, it helps me to write them out and just like get it in my head, that yeah. calm, quiet. You don't, you don't need that. You're doing it every day. You know, these guys. So the actual writing is, is little triggers like that makes all the sense. Exactly. Yeah. And as the game goes on and, and half of these, John is going to be the one who jumped. John is great at jumping in and not hesitating at all. And with conviction, sometimes it's, so, you know, let's see, Schwarber struck out looking to start the game. I can look and see. So one gone in the first director takes a shot of Reese Hoskins. And before I can get into the note, which I have on him, longest tenured position player, five home runs in his last seven games, what I have on here. So for me, that's going to launch me into a story of, you know, this guy who's got this long story with the Phillies up and down. They love him. They hate him. But he's hit five home runs in his last seven games. Right now they love him. I've got all that ready to introduce him. But maybe when the director takes the shot of Reese Hoskins, John is jumping in right away telling me that he's been good against high fastballs lately. And Justin Verlander, who's pitching this game, throws a lot of them. So we're going to get back to it. You know, it doesn't, it, it's like it, it doesn't have to get in. But as soon as I'm ready, as soon as it makes sense for something to get in, that's what's getting in first. And as we get into the game, I've got pages and pages of notes in, in Microsoft OneNote and, you know, hours of conversation with John that's going to fill in the rest. I was thinking about all the stuff you've done and, Wondered if you'd talk about the Bryce Harper homer to to really clinch the the pennant for the Phillies, because boy, that that's an incredibly powerful special moment. I was sitting there watching with my dad in Lambertville, New Jersey, you know, um, and, and and I'm getting chills just thinking about it. It was such a great moment, and you kept your calm, and I think uh, I think that one went pretty well. I hope you feel like it went well. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, that's kind of the moment when you grow up wanting to do the World Series and do big time baseball. Like that's the moment, right? How and how often? It's like a once in a generation type moment where not only does it win the game, not only does it win the series, but it's the biggest star doing it. Because in basketball, you can give the ball to LeBron James. In football, you can design a handoff for the running back that's going to bowl it in over the goal line. In baseball, the game has to line up for the biggest moment to fall on the plate of the biggest player. It lined up, he came up, and it had the backdrop of the raucous Philly crowd, which is so much part of what made the Phillies run special. It had the light drizzle, which added to the drama. And then it was a long at-bat that gave us a chance to set the story, and it ended the way it ended. Bryce said this week, I live for these moments. This is why I came to Philadelphia. 
a decade in the majors, but these moments few and far between. None bigger than this one. On the seventh pitch, Harper hits one in the air, left center field, back it goes! Harper, the swing of his life! It was truly the perfect storm for a moment like that. And yeah, you hope another another example, Matt, that you can draw a line to a player. You hope that as a broadcaster, you can be at your best in those biggest moments because like a player, that's how you're going to be defined. Like people are going to make up their minds whether you're good or not in other moments, right? They listen all year. But I think like how are you, how is Bryce Harper really going to be remembered? At this point, that's one of the things he's going to be remembered for. And I think it's similar for those of us that are lucky enough to sit in these chairs. You're going to be remembered based on how you caption and capture the biggest moments. So you hope that you can, you can come up to the plate and do what Harper did. Yeah, it's it it's it makes all the sense in the world. The you know, I, I was definitely thinking about at that moment cover of Sports Illustrated at 17 years old and actually living up to the hype and being seemingly a good, solid human and a good, stable ball player. And so yeah. the swing of his life, like it, it, it lets you think about all of that if you want. Some yeah. people might not have had that context, but, but I know as a viewer, I sure did. So mm-hmm. a swing of his life kind of kind of takes gives you all of it if you want it. Yeah, and that's the goal, right? Like I always say – You've got to, it's not just home run Bryce Harper and the Phillies lead to really do it justice. It's got to be, you got to widen the lens. What does this home run mean? And I do this nightly with the Dodgers. And that's one of the sneaky, important things that's happened in my career is how good this team's been since I took the job in LA. So I'm in my eighth year now. They win a hundred games a year. And it's like 15 of them a year are the most improbable comeback wins or no hitters or something that you've you've got to capture. And how do you get good at those moments without having the moments happen in front of you, without being lucky enough to be in the chair to have them happen? It's kind of a catch-22. Like you're not going to get these chances unless you show you can handle them. But how do you show you can handle them if they don't happen in front of you? I've been so lucky to be in a chair where they happen in front of me a lot. And that's been a a great way for me to get better at them and and learn how to best handle them, learn how to slow the heart down like a player again, and how to kind of wrap your mind, like anticipate that those moments can happen, right? So, for example, you go into bottom of the ninth inning, Dodgers are down two runs there's a chance they're going to win this game in walk-off fashion. And you start thinking at that point, what would that mean? You know, like were they down 9-1 to one in this game and now it's 9-7? Well, then it would be one of the great comebacks. Uh, do they have a five-game losing streak and this is going to snap that? Wrap your mind around the bigger picture. Because at least for me, I'm not smart enough to have the moment happen and just bam, all this context and here's the perfect way to capture it. I'm trying to wrap my mind around what it would mean and then hope that the right words come out based on that little bit of work. When the World Baseball Classic rosters came together and you saw that Mike Trout was on USA and Shohei was going to be on Japan, you start to dream of the moment you got to end the entire thing. So what is that? It's like a year and a half. 
or 14 months, something yeah. like that. And yeah. for, it to, for it to come down to that, that's another storybook thing that yep. people felt on many different levels. Somebody watched their first WBC game that night or saw on Twitter that this might happen and jumped in. And some people like you and, and like us were following along for 14 months. Just how, right. how the hell do you think about that? Yeah, I'll be honest. I Until I got in it and started doing the games, it felt like the WBC assignment felt like a bit of a nuisance in the way of getting ready for the real season. So yeah, I just can't like say that. I can't. That yeah, I can't say that I was like, "Oh, baby, USA, Japan, maybe could be." It wasn't until first of all we got in, and it was like, "This is pretty cool." You know, the environment's really good. The guys were clearly into it. That I started to very much enjoy it, and then you start to see as we headed to Miami for the final round. Like, oh, okay, like there's a chance that, well, yeah, USA could play Japan. And then in the days leading up to it, like once it became clear that it could be those two teams, it was like, oh, boy, Otani could be available. Like Japan started to say, yes, he could be available to close the game. It wasn't until the day of that game, really, or maybe the day before where it's like, man, can you imagine – like trout against Otani with it. And then not only to have it happen, but to have it happen in the bottom of the ninth with the, you know, with trout representing the tying run to have it go to a full count. That's another one of those once in a generation moments, because so many things lined up for it to become that, that without one of the elements, it isn't as special as it is. And it had every single one of those elements to build it up and make it that. Impossible theater. The regal excellence of Japan. The overwhelming talent of the United States. And in a one-run game with two gone in the ninth inning, the dream matchup. Otani, Trout. Otani's ready. Trout's ready. 3-2. He struck him out! Otani strikes out Trout, and Japan's back on top of the baseball world. So how do you pay homage to Vin Scully while still being yourself and embracing it as the guy who follows, not the replacement, the way you talked about it, which makes all the sense in the world? How do you, how, how do you still pay homage to Vin? I think that it's by recognizing what people love so much about him. First and foremost, I think, was his ability to tell stories. And so when I go back, you know, 2016, I was doing road games. He was doing home games. And so when I wasn't doing the road games, I was listening to Vin through the home games. And I would find myself kind of getting lost as a fan, just enjoying his stories. And then I'd go back and critique myself, as we've talked about, and I'd hear my ears perk up as I was telling stories. My ears would perk up as I'd hear myself tell stories. And it's like, huh, I'm, like, I'm not very good at this, but just the human condition is to want to hear stories. And so recognizing that it's part of what made him great and it's what people appreciate and expect, then appreciating that there's something to it and realizing even when I do it poorly, I, I think that it's, it adds so much and just combining those things and, and realizing that it needed to be part of uh, Dodger broadcasts. I've made it as much of it, uh, a part of it as I can. And I've had to work really hard at it. Cause I like nobody's as good of a storyteller as Vin. Nobody ever will be. I still, 
stunk at it and still I don't think I'm great at it, but I've studied it. I've read books about storytelling and in the same way that I was critiquing, you know, right down to the word, how I was calling a double in the gap. I do the same with storytelling now. So the, the storytelling component would probably be the biggest thing. People say like, oh, you laid out there and really let the crowd talk like Vin. Well, Ben's not the only guy that does that, right? Like most broadcasters have an appreciation for laying out. So that's not one that I think consciously like, okay, you know, Vin would lay out here. I've got to lay out. It's more Vin humanized these guys and I'm not doing it just because Vin did it. I'm doing it because I heard Vin do it and it's awesome. And I think that it should be part of it. Well, Vin probably heard Red Barber do it, you know, sure. it's uh and, and and Vin developed it on his own. Probably heard Bill Stern telling sports stories on the radio back in the 30s and 40s. You know, like there's there there's a lineage of it. There's a reason we love the stories. It's um, what, what storytelling books is interesting. Like Power of Myth, Joseph Campbell, that kind of stuff. Or like I have said that. I think I need to. Um, let's see. I got a few over here. The Art of Storytelling is one I've read. The Power of Storytelling. Uh, there's one that I started to get into and then it didn't really line up. Um, are you familiar with the moth series? Yeah, absolutely. The radio series, the moth. Absolutely. Yeah. They have a storytelling guide, but I got into it about a chapter in and realized that it was more about like telling your own story, which is, it's a yeah. different thing I think than we're doing. Um, but yeah, those are the two that I see right on my shelf right now that pop to mind and, you know, all kinds of notes that I took from those and every now and then we'll refer back to. You know, I, there was a moment um, in my day job with Parkins and Spiegel last year, I think it was, I grabbed a touchdown that I happened to hear you make while I was watching Red Zone one Sunday afternoon. And I'm breaking my own rule as I talk football on a baseball podcast, but <laughs> um it, it, he it, it it was it was a very little known Tampa Bay wide receiver who I'd never heard of, who I think had been an Olympic sprinter. Um, and all of a sudden he caught a touchdown sort of out of nowhere. He was open and ran 30 yards into the end zone. And you gave the backstory as part of the call live. And I was like, holy hell, listen to that preparation that came out in the call that I caught on red zone. Pressure coming here. Brady trying to beat him with blown coverage. It's a touchdown. First career score for Cyril Grayson. The Trek All-American at LSU who didn't play college football gets his chance and takes advantage. Well, they go stack. You go trips to one side, and they just two guys jump Evans. Two guys immediately jump Evans, and it just opens it up then for Cyril Grayson. I mean, <laughs> how good is that? Second career catch for Grayson, who had played in six games in his career. Who didn't play college football, just ran track there, was a national champion. Wild scouts at LSU's Pro Day, so he got a chance on a couple of practice squads. Two games in 19, three games last year. His second game of 2021 and his first career score. But now that I hear you talk about it, it's your love of the storytelling that yeah. made you feel comfortable enough to get it in there in the call. And I'm so glad you did. I didn't. I don't even know if you remember who I'm talking about. Yeah, I'm glad that you point out the love of storytelling thing. So I like, as 
you know, all of us, I think as we get a little bit older, we, we deep dive and reflect a little bit. And last few years, I've tried to figure out like, what is it that I'm doing? What am I trying to do with these broadcasts? You know, like what, what's my purpose? And one of the things I think about is like on a very basic level, it's my job to bring joy to people, right? In this, in this chair. And the way I try to do that is by sharing my love for baseball and stories. And I think about that every day. Like I love baseball or football. I'm not, we're not allowed to say that. I don't want to break the podcast rules. I love sports. So just sharing my love for sports and stories. And uh, when you look at it that way, that really helps drive a lot of what I do. You know, the, the prep during the day, the it's it's kind of the quiet foundation of my call from seven to ten each night is looking at it that way like really what is and it's kind of a cheesy way to to look at it i think but it 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 works and it powers you through the you know nine to one blowout on a tuesday in august when the team's already 20 games up in first place who cares if the game at that point doesn't matter what matters is it's my job to bring joy to people and i have a couple ways of doing that I think uh, even fans who might consider themselves numbers wonks or um, analytical to the nth degree, they love the stories, even if Mm -hmm. it's not fully, fully conscious. So I I think you've tapped into the right, the right thing. It's, I mean, there's a million of them, um, but is there a Vin story that you remember hearing or a Vin Mm -hmm. moment um, that, 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 that jumps to you that, that that we ought to go listen to just how we handled a story or something could be from 2016 or could be anything yeah. that, that linked for you. Uh, he had some good Bumgarner ones. I think there's one about Bumgarner killing a snake. You know, Bumgarner tells a story, which in a sense reminds you of what it takes to be a big league ball player. It's two years ago in spring training and he and his wife were roping cattle, which is what they do. One, one pitch, sinker low, ball two, two and one. And they were startled by a large snake. And Madison thought it was a rattlesnake, so he grabbed an ax and he hacked the snake to pieces. But there's something more to the story. Two, one pitch, low, ball three, three and one. When his wife, Allie, and an expert field dresser examined what was left of the snake, she found two baby jackrabbits inside pieces of the snake and extracted them. 3-1 pitch to Turner way inside ball four. And after she extracted them a short while later, the Bumgarners noticed that one of the rabbits had moved slightly. It was alive. Well, his wife brought the rabbit back to their apartment. For the next few days, they kept it warm, bottle nursed it, and the rabbit soon was healthy enough that they released it into the wild. And Madison said, just think about how tough that rabbit was. First it gets eaten by a snake, then the snake gets chopped to pieces, then it gets picked up by people and lives. It's all true. Meanwhile, line drive base hit to center by Hendrick, and the Dodgers are in business, first and second and nobody out. So I guess really the morale of the whole story about the rabbit and the snake. You've got to somehow survive. You've got to somehow battle back. A lesson well taught for all of us. 
Jeez. I mean, the, the thing with him was it was like the game knew that he was telling the story and the game was going to play along in order for him to finish the story, not just give him time to finish it, but then when he did, the inning was going to wrap up. I get so pissed. Like, I feel like it's the opposite for me. I go into a story and the guy hits into a double play. I'm like, you kidding me? Like, come on, Finn. I know you're upstairs watching now. You can't help me out. You can't like, you can't make that happen for me from up above. But it was amazing how the game seemingly played right into his storytelling hands all the time. Just uncanny. You know, I I realized that I admitted this the other day. I mean, I love – I love the rules this year. I've been calling it the new deal because I think what Theo has done, it's just as important as what FDR did in my opinion in in the thirties, you know? So uh, yeah, it's it's the same level of importance, but, but all the rules were all the rules working together to do what they're doing. But I just realized I feel rushed when I'm listening to a broadcast. I, I, and I had to admit it here at mid season, I feel a little rushed if I get to be part of one, but even just as I'm listening. And I wonder if, if you feel rushed in a storytelling sense, it, it, it affects the, the pace of what you do. I don't feel rushed. I love it like you do. Um, but I don't tell as many stories. It's just not, there's not time to go much more than like an aside on a guy or a nugget. And I don't, I think that was one of the criticisms of me here in LA at first was that my stories were nuggets as opposed to true stories. Like Vin was going to spin a yarn. You can't really spin a yarn now. I think that I got much better at that as my career has gone on, but it's hard to do now. And it's hard to prepare those, not hard, but it takes time to prepare those and to be ready to tell a drawn out complete story it just doesn't feel like the best use of my time anymore and my preparation to do these deep dives. It's more headline stuff because that's all there's room for. That makes sense. And, and now that we're talking about it, kind of glad we didn't have to hear Vin adjust to the pitch clock. You know, I mean, like, obviously yeah. he did it. He did it for yeah. decades at that pace and was great at it. But as he settled into the longer games, we got more and more gold. It's like, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're dealing with it is what I'm saying. Yeah, right. No, I, and I am too. I'm, I think that we're all happy to have it this way. If you could, um, advice that has stuck with you that you'd, that you'd be willing to share. Um, one, The first one, mechanically, on just kind of doing the job. You've given us a lot of stuff that I'm sure people have heard, but if there's something else mechanically about preparation or about doing it that you think has been vital for you, I think people would love to know what that is yeah mechanically mad it is respect the pitch and get out of the way of the pitch every next pitch could be the one and the bigger the game you're in the higher the stakes the more heightened that is so i hear that's the number one issue that i hear when i listen to tape is i hear the pop of the mitt or the crack of the bat And it doesn't even have to be like you were talking about something else. If you're late setting that pitch, if you're telling me here's the 2-2 and while you're saying here, I hear the crack of the bat, it's too late. You're going to have to speed up. Back to our conversation about you don't want to speed up. You don't want to let the action speed up. You're not going to have a choice. And this is mostly radio where this is the case, but the same applies for TV to really be clean and really be measured. You've got to be out of the way 
for that pitch. And I think the best guy that I listened to at that to to really develop that myself was John Miller on Giants Radio. Excellent rhythm and cadence and pacing with it almost becomes the crack of the bat and the pop of the mid almost becomes part of your call where it's here's the two, two beat pop call. Like it becomes this rhythmic thing as opposed to that sound getting lost in whatever it is you're saying. So that would be the number one thing that becomes, you know, like it becomes the foundation for your entire call when you settle into that rhythm. And then the other one's a little, um, more like graduate level. I'd call that like a, a very basic thing that you've got to nail to be good. The other one is uh, from Jerry Howarth, who is the Blue Jays longtime radio voice. His one of the tricks he gave me when I was really early on was to lay out for the PA announcer to announce the hitter. And it's another one of those little rhythm tricks where if you pause and let the PA announcer say now batting right fielder Mookie Betts, and then you jump back in. That's another little device to set up this structure where it's three hours of what could be a free flowing mess. So to have any kind of structure added to it, pitch to pitch with what I talked about, the rhythm of the crack of the bat, batter to batter using that PA introduction as sort of your reset to move on to the next guy. Um, those are two really good little mechanical tricks. That, that, that's that's phenomenal. And because the effect of that also is that the viewer, the listener, feels a little bit more like they're at the ball game as well. Sure. So nice, nice, nice little bonus in there, even if it's low, you know, even yeah. if it's quiet, yeah. you hear it and you feel it. Yep. Um, and then, is there a piece of advice just in terms of the career? I think you've also kind of given us a lot of that in terms of like being self-critical, listening to yourself. Anything else in uh, in in that regard? Uh, somebody's just sort of thinking about making their way in in the business. Yeah, is control what you can control, and it's so much easier said than done. And I was horrible at it at first. Where you know, I I would wonder every time I didn't get a job or even something as specific as like the grids would come out when I first started doing TV, I'd be looking at, well, why did that guy get that game? And I got this game. Like, what do the bosses think about him that they don't think about me? Don't worry about that stuff. Don't get wrapped up in that work hard, be nice, treat people well. And, you know, I think you got to have a little bit of it. You got to have a little bit of natural talent, but the rest of it, you really can control being a good guy, working hard and getting better and trust that in time, you're going to get to where you want to go. Be nice is a life hack. It really is. Um, you just, you, you feel better. You feel better. Yeah. Karmically, it comes back around. Other people's days go better. All of that. Right. Yeah. It's just, My, uh, you know, like nameplate on a desk. This yeah. is what I have on mine. Work, work hard and be kind. There you go. Yeah. Uh, Joe Davis, what a pleasure, man. Thank you for the openness. And um, it's it's great to hear that you think about the job with the reverence and the critical eye that um, that you do, because, um, frankly, it makes it a little more palatable to see your success at the age you are, sir. Thanks, man. Thank you. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, you feel it. 
you feel it. You care about it. You feel the history of it. You feel the weight of it. And you still maintain the ability to be yourself. That's that, that's beautiful stuff. So thanks for sharing all of it. Of course. And I really enjoyed talking. I appreciate you having me. The top of Broadcast Mountain at the age of 35 and deservedly so. Oh, listeners, so much incredible advice in there from Joe Davis. The way he talked about the crack of the bat and the pop of the catcher's mitt being part of the cadence in your call, allowing the sound of the PA announcer to be heard. Goodness. A few other notes. How about the Joe Buck Kinko's special, as he called it? And what Joe Davis hopes is the next 15 years of All-Star Games score sheets laid out before him. Uh, By now, the All-Star Game has been played, and we heard Joe comfortably weaving in and out of mic'd up innings with so many players, while also just doing the game. What an incredibly hard gig. And in the penultimate moment of the game, when maybe the least hallowed player in the entire game has the most impactful hit, Joe rose to the moment and gave us a bit of a story as well. Not going 2-2 to Diaz. is hit in the air to deep left field. Back it goes. Elias Diaz puts the National League in front. At 32 years old in his all-star debut, a go-ahead home run. Such a great call. I, I love Joe's thought process in following Vin Scully, didn't you? Dan Shulman told us last week that no one will ever tell a story as well as Vin Scully told a story. And yet Joe knew that the storytelling was exactly what he wanted to carry on. He carved out that particular characteristic as both something he wanted to do well and something that he knew would connect him and the fans forever with Vin. I find that artistically elegant. And then in his aspirational, earnest nature, Joe Davis buys storytelling books, researches how to be better at it. It's inspiring. I hope Joe doesn't mind that we let Vin crash the party with that Madison Bumgarner snake story. Next week, the Hall of Famer himself, Pat Hughes, is our guest. Pat is a treasure, a good friend, a kind man, and an incredibly deserving recipient of this year's Ford C. Frick Award. As announced at the top of the podcast, while Pat's in Cooperstown, I'll be doing all three games of Cubs-Cardinals at Wrigley on the Cubs radio network. You can listen to those on the MLB at Bat app locally in Chicago via the Odyssey app or, of course, on good old 670 The Score. My producer is Ryan Porth. My collaborator is James Vickery. The theme music for the PBP comes from the great Kurt Morrison of Tributosaurus. Find the PBP Voices of Baseball on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts from 2400 Sports, Odyssey, and Major League Baseball, the PBP, Voices of Baseball. I'll bring you the people who bring you the game.